Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We often find ourselves in communities that we love. We would do anything for these communities. But what happens when that love becomes too much? Do we begin to hate those outside the group? You're listening to Going Deeper, Shining on the Evil and the Good by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is once again from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount called Growing Deeper. And this morning, I'll be focusing on the very last of Jesus' you have heard it said sayings. Um, Every sermon we've done, well, except for the first one, just about every sermon I've done so far has been about one of these sayings. Jesus has six of them where he says, you have heard it said, and then he quotes an Old Testament law, often one of the Ten Commandments, and then he goes on to teach on that law, and not just teach on it, but go beyond that law, go beneath it, to push his love and his ways down deep into the corners of our heart. He's doing the same in this final saying, let's listen as Jesus pushes us deeper. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, where would the people to whom Jesus was preaching, where would they have heard that? Well, interestingly, not in the Old Testament. All the other sayings that Jesus cites up till now are clearly laws taken from the Pentateuch, taken from the Torah of God. But this one is not from the Torah. There is no place anywhere in the Old Testament where it says, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. The love your neighbor part is in there. Leviticus 19.18, the law does tell us to do that, but there is no law which tells us to hate our neighbors. So, where is Jesus getting this from? Is he misquoting the Old Testament? Is he doing something wrong? Where is Jesus saying that they are hearing that particular maxim? Well, I think it's this. There is no direct call to hate your enemies in the Old Testament. Well, that's true. There are plenty of places in the Old Testament that express something like hatred for our enemies and for the people who are against us. And what I'm thinking of are the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms are the the expressions, the prayers of people who have been oppressed who have experienced terrible things, and they pray for God to do terrible things, to bring judgment upon their enemies. And often, those prayers against the enemies express something like hatred. Psalm 58, 
Break the teeth of the wicked, Lord. Psalm 31. Lord, I hate, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. Psalm 55. Lord, let death take my enemies. Let them go down to the grave alive. Let them be buried alive. And then even Psalm 139, which is like one of our favorites, right? That's the psalm about being knit together in your mother's womb and that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. When we read that psalm, we often only read about the first 19 verses because after that, it turns to an imprecation. And it says, and I quote, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I have nothing but hatred for them. So while there are no direct calls to hate our enemies in the Old Testament, there is this sentiment that you see in the imprecatory psalms and some of the other places. Now, the imprecatory psalms, that's a whole other sermon. I'm not going to go into why they have those kinds of sayings in them. There's actually worse things in them, or at least more shocking to our modern years. That's an important question, and I'll deal with that later. For our intents and purposes, what happened was that some of the teachers of the law back in those days took those imprecatory psalms and the sentiments in them and turned them into commands. So maybe you've heard of the Qumram community. That was a, a strict religious sect that had a settlement along the shores of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls came from the Qumram community. And in that community, which as I said was very strict, there was a teaching they commanded their followers this. You must love all the sons of light, but you must hate all the sons of darkness. Now, of course, not everyone was a member of the Qumran community, but their teaching was influential. So it was the kind of thing that spilled over into other places. So it was absolutely the kind of thing that you would hear on the streets of Jerusalem. The crowd to whom Jesus was preaching would absolutely have heard, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And frankly, every generation of God's people has heard that dark command. Every generation of God's people has heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Because that call to love your neighbor and hate your enemy has been, for all kinds of communities, one of the default ways we use as human beings to form strong communities in this world. You can form a strong community with love. Right? If you can get people to love each other and to pursue a common goal together, share that love for a common goal, you can form a strong community. But when you add hate to that mutual love, then you raise that commitment to an entirely new level. When you add to that common love a common hatred of an enemy who we are all against, all of a sudden community has been raised to a level that is fervent, that is sometimes even fanatical and dangerous. One of the places you see this most obviously is in the world of sports, okay? Now sports fans at, 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 the, at the most simple level are into their teams because they love their teams, right? You follow your team, you look in the paper to see if they won or they lost, you cheer for them, you sing the fight song, you put on the t-shirt. That's all the sort of the love your neighbor side of this. But I think we know that the really fervent sports fans don't just love their team, they also have hatred 
animosity towards their rival. I love my team, but I hate those dirty cheaters over there at Ohio State. And the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry is actually a really good example of actually how this works, okay? Really fanatical Michigan fans don't just love Michigan, they also hate Ohio State. And really fanatical Buckeye fans don't just love the Buckeyes, they also hate the Wolverines. And that, that's part of a whole culture, right? Woody Hayes, the old coach of the Buckeyes, uh, refused to even say the word Michigan, right? He would only talk about that, that, that state up there, that place up there. And someone told me after the morning service that Woody Hayes, when he would uh, take the team bus to play at Michigan, would stop right at the border of Michigan to gas up the bus so that he could get all the way to Ann Arbor and back without having to buy gas in Michigan. So great was his animosity. And on the Michigan side, you had Brady Hoke, who was nowhere near as successful a coach, but he used to, when he talked about Ohio State, he never said Ohio State, he just said Ohio. Okay. So there's the dynamic. Love your neighbors, love your team, hate your enemy. Now, in the world of sports, that's all pretty innocent. It's, it's not such a big deal that Woody Hayes did those things. But when that dynamic comes into the other, more serious areas of life, then it becomes a great source of evil. Then it becomes the source of tribalism. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy is the first commandment of tribalism. A tribal mentality is when we have a deep, deep love for our people and our ways and our team and a deep animosity to those people out there. I love my people, my brothers and sisters. I'll do anything for them. I'll die for them. And I hate those people out there. I will fight them with the last drop of my energy and blood. Tribalism has been an effective tool of the devil. It's been the source of genocide, war, and terrorism. An obvious and extremely destructive example of it is Nazi Germany. You have exactly that tribalistic dynamic in Nazi Germany. Extreme love for the in-group, right? Really high levels of patriotism and love of all things German, okay? Whether that's the music or the art or just really high levels of patriotism coupled with hatred of the outsider, specifically Jews and communists. And it was a very effective way of creating community, right? Everyone was radically committed to the cause. The, the polling was very, very high, but it became a kind of fanatical, destructive machine. And that's from one side of, of the spectrum, but the same thing happened in the Russian Revolution, right? Love your neighbor, hate your The same kind of things. The good guys and the bad guys taken to the extreme. Same thing in the Rwandan massacres. Same thing in the excesses of the French Revolution. The same dynamic is happening in modern-day cancel culture. Love your friends, hate your enemies. And I think we all know that we're seeing that kind of tribalism enacted in all spheres of our political life these days. Jesus tells us that tribalism is not our way. 
That's not how we do community. That's how the scribes and the Pharisees do community. That's how the tax collectors do community. That's how the pagans do community, says Jesus. But your heavenly Father does community in an entirely different way. Tribalism is a corruption of true community. And in that sense, it's a lot like two other things that Jesus has been talking about in this sermon. It's like lust, right? Lust is a corruption of the good gift of love. Contempt is a corruption of the good gift of anger, proper anger. Tribalism is the corruption of the good gift of community. It's community twisted. And instead of that twisted way, Jesus says to us, if you're followers of my heavenly Father, love your neighbor and love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And then you'll be children of my heavenly father. Then you will have understood the way that dad does it. Then you will have understood the father's style. If I were to try to describe exactly the kind of love that Jesus is calling to us, the kind of community love that he's holding up here, I would call it parason love. Parason love. What is parason? That is a Greek word that is found in verse 47 of our passage. And in verse 47, it's translated as more. And that's one possible meaning for it. But it also can mean abundant or extra or beyond. So, for example, John 10, verse 10, that famous verse where Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's the word parason. So when something is parason, it abounds. When something is parason, it's so much extra, it's so far beyond that when people see it, they stop and they look and they say, wow, that's unexpected. Jesus is calling us to a love that is truly parason. We love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us, not just those who are against us, not just those who disagree with us, those who persecute us, those who are actively seeking to harm us. We pray for them. Most of the loves out there will only go so far, right? They'll go right up to your enemy's gate, but then they stop. Jesus is calling us for a love that jumps the gate and somehow embraces your enemy with love. If the church actually started to practice that love, If we actually had that kind of love in the church, the whole world would stop and say, wow. We would be Paris on the whole world, would stop when they saw us, and they would say, that's remarkable. Our light, to use words that Jesus used earlier in the sermon, our light would not be under a bushel basket. It would shine before many. Paris on love is not easy. Let me finish this sermon with four suggestions, four ways in which that kind of love can live in us as individuals and us as a community. And the first one is is kind of a negative thing, a kind of an uprooting. I think it starts for us by asking the question, am I part of any community where allegiance to that community, where camaraderie in that community is built up not only by my love for what they stand for, but also by my hatred of something else? Am I part of any groups where the leaders of that group or the spokespeople of that group are constantly speaking in contemptuous and hateful ways about some other community of people? 
And that could obviously be a political group or a cultural group, but it could be something as simple as a social group at your school, in middle school or in high school. Are you part of a group of kids who like each other, but your like is also funded by the cynical and angry way you talk about those people out there? If you can say that you are part of such a group, may I gently suggest that you either remove yourself or find a way to change the dynamic. Second, loving your enemy does not mean being tolerant of sin, soft on evil, or ignorant of injustice. Jesus is not giving us some hippie speech here. Okay? He's not saying, hey man, let's just love each other, and we'll all sing kumbaya, and everything will be all right, and we'll just all get along. Okay? Not saying that. Love your enemy. So Jesus is allowing for the truth that there are enemies in this world. There are people who try to persecute us. There are enemies of the gospel who try to come against us and try to hurt us. And we must fight them somehow. We must resist them. But, but the, the, the tools of our fight and the spirit of our fight must be love at the beginning, love in the middle, and love at the end. And as we engage in that fight, people must see, must have the sense that we are loving them, not just in theory, but in practice. It must be evident. Does that sound hard? Welcome to the life of carrying your cross. It is hard. It's wonderful. There's nothing else like it, but it's really hard. Which brings us to the third suggestion, specific thing Jesus says about how you do it. Pray for your enemies. Now, I know that all of us know that we're supposed to pray for enemies. I, I don't think that's, I'm telling you anything that you don't know. But in my experience, while everybody knows that we ought to pray for our enemies, not very many people do. Lent is coming. Lent is a season where we adopt new spiritual practices. May I suggest as an option for you that during the season of Lent, you start praying for your enemies every day in your personal prayers. You could do that generally, but it's better if you do it specifically. Pick some person who inflames you. Maybe that's a political or cultural figure. Maybe it's just someone at your work or someone in your neighborhood, or someone who's your antagonist. Pray for that person every day. And if you're a young family and you do you know, prayers around the table. See if you can pray for your enemies there too. Try to do that specifically as a way to disciple your children in this important habit that Jesus is teaching us. Finally, fourth thing, last thing. And if you remember nothing else about what I say about this Paris on love, remember this part. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, he is calling us to love like his heavenly father. He's saying, this is how the father loves. That's where this love comes from. If I set out this week to love my enemies, and I think the strength of that comes from me. So if I'm, if I'm sitting there every morning going, okay, I'm going to love my enemies today. I'm going to do it. Okay, Peter, let's look. these are difficult people. I'm going to do it. I'm going to find the strength to do it. If, I, if that's my approach, if I'm looking for the resources within my own strength, I will probably not succeed for very long at all. Jesus is saying, 
The only way to do this is to turn your eyes towards your Heavenly Father and look at what He does and realize that enemy love is what He does every single day. He sends rain upon the just and the unjust, making all our fields grow. He sends sunshine on the good and the bad, warming this good earth. Every single day, our Lord pours out an abundance of common grace upon friend and foe alike. Rain and sunshine and music and laughter and art and romance and human love poured out, not just in little bits, but parason, abundantly. And if you can fix your eyes on this abundance of love that is falling on good and evil alike and realizing that God is loving his enemies every single day through these good things, it helps you to turn around and do the same. Jesus mentions rain and sunshine of examples of ways in which God loves his enemies. But I can think of another example and get this one from Paul. The Greek word for enemy is ekthros. Ekthros. And Jesus says, love your ekthroi. That's plural. There's another place in scripture where love of ekthros is mentioned, and that's Romans 5. Do you remember who the enemy is there? There Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, God sent his son so that we may be reconciled to him. Paul does not think of rain and sunshine when he thinks of God loving his enemies. He thinks of the cross and how Jesus poured out love there upon us as we were spitting on him and cursing at him. We are the enemies. We are the ones who have received enemy love. It is enemy love who saved me. It is enemy love who saved you. God has poured out this enemy love upon you. You don't have to summon up the resources from your own strength to love your enemies because God has already poured that love into your heart. And when you, by the Holy Spirit, are able to see that clearly, it makes it so much easier for you to go and do likewise. As we try to be a community of this parasol love, let me conclude this sermon with words of the Apostle Paul as he tries to point the Ephesians to the face of God and to precisely this kind of abounding love. He doesn't use the word parasol in this quote. Uh, he uses an even better word, if that was possible. He uses hooper parasol, hyper parasol, super abundant. And this is what Paul says as he tries to point us to the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He says, I want you to know this love that surpasses, abounds knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, who prepares on, than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, it's so good to come to your cross and to realize that um, your love for us jumps over the fence of our resistance and our rebellion and our neglect. And that you don't just love us when we're pretty good, you love us when we're terrible. Thank you, Lord, that you've poured this redeeming love into our hearts. May that love continue to transform us more and more into your image so that our light may shine before many. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.